You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome to Earth Station One, a weekly podcast dedicated to all things sci-fi, fantasy, and much, much more. Sit back and relax and enjoy the show. Hey there, listeners, and welcome to the next episode of the Earth Station One podcast. That's right, folks. We're here to talk about the music again, the music that never stops, the music that is part of your life. And sadly enough, the music we're going to be talking about tonight is all about the late Jim Steinman. That's right. You probably might not recognize the name, but you'll know the music. It's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. And the man who keeps the music alive in his heart and singing it from the top of his lungs when we're not around, of course, is Mr. Mike Gordon. Howdy! You're always tapping your toe and ready to sing and belt out a Jim Steinman tune? Always. I'm, I'm, I'm epically dramatic, just like a Steinman song. That explains so damn much over the last 11 years. It really, <laughs> really does. How you been this week, my friend? I've been all right. I've been all right. Um, yeah, that was one of those ones that, uh, you know, came out of nowhere uh, a month or so ago um, when we found out that he passed. And uh, the more, um, you know, Michelle's going to join us a little bit later. But the more we talked about it, the more we were like, you know what? He uh, he deserves uh, a whole show as a tribute. So um, so it's going to be fun and, you know, in a nice tribute way to talk all about uh, his influence and his music. So. So, yeah, I definitely think we will enjoy talking about it. We have, like you said, Ricky and Bambi are going to be joining us. And, you know, it should be very interesting to see, you know, what he what created, you know, his sound. What was the Steinman sound? And he had, you know, you could tell a song from a mile away, which is pretty darn awesome. And speaking of hearing us from a mile away, we definitely want to say hey to all our listeners out there. Hope you guys are doing okay and surviving the spring and getting ready to hop into summer now. It's pretty amazing. You know, we definitely would love to hear from you guys, you know, with this topic. You know, write us feedback at earthstation1.com. And, you know, let us know what you guys thought. You definitely, I'd be very curious to hear. And, you know, we also want to hear, you know, what are you guys doing with your Memorial Day? Did you guys in the States um, celebrate? You know, did you guys go off and go to the beach? Did you hang out still locally at home? Or did you, you know, try, try to get back to normal? See, a lot of people actually went to the movies this weekend, which was pretty amazing in itself. So definitely, you know, Definitely want to hear from you guys. Of course, you know, as we like to say, please look us up and please subscribe to us wherever fine podcasts are found. Definitely tell your friends, tell your neighbors, you know, leave feedback. That's how people find us. You know, more people listen, the more people find us, the more people, you know, participate and, you know, the more we grow. You know, during COVID, you know, both Mike and I did grow, but not the way podcast wise we were hoping we were just we just grew but that's a whole different story on itself so we definitely would love to hear from you guys definitely please you know keep it up guys you guys are doing great as we like to say 
Big shout out to our patrons, of course, of the ESO Network. All you have to do is go to ESO Network Patreon, and you could just go to, to look at the site. And you know, if you go through the ESO website or you go patreon.com slash ESO Network, you could definitely find out all about us. And it's pretty awesome where, you know, you get exclusive material that, you know, no other people get. And we've been getting a few new patrons, so it's pretty awesome. And, you know, our show goes up 48 hours before everybody else does. And I think by the time this goes live, you might also be hearing very soon from our friends at Earth Station Trek. They have a Patreon-exclusive episode coming your way. So I think it's our first one. So definitely check it out and for as little as 25 cents a week you could help support the eso network all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash eso network also a big shout out to our friends over at tofosi optical tofosi optical this is their busy time of the year not that they're busy not the rest of the year but this is the big time summertime is here folks uh you know people are out of school down in the south up in the north they're about to get out in the next two weeks you know people are going to be going to on vacations people are going back to the beach you know people are starting to get back into life and what better way to do it is than with a pair of sunglasses from Tifosi Optics. You can custom make your own pair of sunglasses and for as little as, I think, $29. That's not bad. And you could save money by if you use the coupon code EarthStation1. And it's not just 10% off one item. It is 10% off your whole order. That's pretty good if you think about it, if you get a couple different pair of glasses. 10% saves a lot of money and also helps the network out and the EarthStation 1 itself. So please... Go to tofosioptics.com and tell them Earth Station One sent you. And now we have some friends returning hey. to the show. Let's welcome Mark Wheatley. Welcome, sir. Hi. Thanks for having me. And you brought a couple friends with you. I did. Mark Redfield and Howdy. Jennifer Rouse. Hello. Hello. So happy to be here. Yes, very happy. We are we are very happy to have you here. And of course, uh, you are here because you are all. Um, behind the project the frankenstein mobster audio drama correct which mm -hmm. sounds very exciting I, I got to hear all about this and and at first i think it, it does it begin with you uh mark wheatley yes well yeah i mean frankenstein mobster started out uh with me as a uh a comic that became a, a graphic novel and um i've had a lot of talk over the years about turning this into a motion picture and we're still talking but the one thing that really caught my attention was hanging out with Mark Redfield and Jen and uh, getting the idea that we could do this as an audio drama. And uh, when we first started talking about it, I had a lot of ideas in my head about how that could go. But since that time, Mark and Jennifer have turned out some really spectacular works. And uh, I'm just thrilled now that uh, they're willing to take this on because they've really proved themselves over and over again. Yeah, um, Mark, um, as far as you, I mean, you've been on the show before and we've talked about some of your audio projects, which are first rate. And um, how did you get involved with this? And what was it about this property that you thought would be perfect for audio? I um, met Mr. Wheatley at a convention um, soon or around the time in the early 2000s when Frankenstein Mobster came out and I think uh, we had just done or were promoting a film I made either Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or something and we were at this convention <clears throat> where um, had been extremely popular over the years but for some reason they decided to do it in an abandoned high school and 
Mr. Wheatley and I found ourselves alone in a classroom <laughs> yeah. all day for two days. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Stockholm Syndrome, I think we bonded. <laughs> I see. Yeah. I was there too, actually. Oh, you were there back too. Then. Uh, I was. So it, yep. it, it, it was probably about that time, Jekyll Hyde to the death of Poe or whatever. And um, so, um, you know, I had been aware of uh, being a, uh, in, especially an indie comic book fan, I've been aware of the title. I knew the title. Um, I left the convention with an armload of stuff, and uh, a friendship was born. And over a period of time, um, and this is pre-pandemic, um, I have always loved radio drama and audio drama. And I was lucky enough to do bits and pieces of things, do some things for the BBC. I did a lot of voices for video games over the years, a lot of commercials and, and narration. And, and so I started a few years ago to get into the audio drama thing. It's a, a, I have a passion for the form. And I get to write and direct and act and play characters that are not nearly as old as I really am. And um, so Mr. Mark Wheatley... Jen and I uh, have this company, Redfield Arts Audio, and we've been producing audio drama and audio books. And a year ago, um, Mark was working on uh, an illustrated book of poems uh, that were from some poets that one wouldn't expect. The book was called, or is called, Songs of Giants, the poetry of pulp and the poems are from Edgar Rice Burroughs, um, Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft. And he called me out of the blue and said, you know, I think this would really be a great audio book. And I jumped on it. I think Jen and I, I recorded the poems. Jen scored the poems musically. I think we did it in two days. No, I'm kidding. We, we just hit the gas. We're so uh, excited to do it. And uh, both the book and the audio book have been very well received. They've been out for a while. And I keep nagging. Almost sold out. And um, uh, yeah, and uh, the, the audio book is on Audible. And um, so every once in a while, Mark Wheatley and I would chat about something or he would post something online and I would reach out and say, I want to do an audio drama based on either Frankenstein mobster, because I love it, uh, or Dr. Cthulhu, because I love it. And so these conversations would keep going. And then just recently, I wasn't doing anything. I didn't do anything to deserve this, but Wheatley reached out and said, okay, let's do it. And I said, I'm ready. Let's go. And then he said, Let's really go. And I said, oh, okay. Um, I'll, I'll make a hole and we'll make it this summer. And so um, uh, what I'm doing right now as of this chat between us all is um, outlining and circling the project and doing the pre-work I do with a script to adapt something. And, um, and it's just a marvelous uh, the characters are marvelous. The world is marvelous. And those are the two things that really attract me to it. That's my story. And I'm stuck in it. Uh, to it. 
Now, is this an adaptation <laughs> of the of the of one of the stories in the comic, or is it new uh, a new story? It'll be the Made Man gotcha. uh, graphic novel. Yeah, so it's essentially, and right now we're calling it season one. Uh, cheekily knowing we're hoping that there is a season two next in 2022. But uh, sure. yeah, it is It is this wonderful story arc uh, that it, that uh, makes up the graphic novel Made Man. And it's going to be eight episodes. Okay. Right. Eight chapters. Um, and uh, it will be available for digital download on Audible and other great uh, platforms. Um, but we also would love to do uh, and make sure that there is a 3D, a three CD disc set mm-hmm. um, because the quality, I don't want to ambush sales for Audible, but they compress the audio. And so when you've got really wonderful sound design and Jennifer's music, that all gets a little bit compressed. Um, but uh, obviously there are other formats, the MP3, and CDs, uh, it, it'll be, oh, what's that word? Immersive. I think it'll be quite. <laughs> That's pretty awesome and everything. And I know exactly what you mean with Audible. I saw mm-hmm. what they did with Neil Gaiman's Sandman. It's all mono. Uh, it's all, exactly. Yeah. And it, it, it could have been spectacular. Mm-hmm. It was it was great. So I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys are going to be doing. In uh, Jennifer, when did yeah, you get involved? Um, at the same time that, well, I guess Mark had talked to Mark mm-hmm. beforehand, but then he asked me to do the music and sound design for it. Um, and they're a team. They really can't. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're very strong. You get uh, one, you get the other. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, that's magic when you guys work together. Oh, thank you. If I'm, if I'm talking to somebody on the phone and we're, we're making plans for shenanigans, I'm often... <clears throat> texting jennifer at the same time saying uh brace yourself schedule change here we go uh, right <laughs> so she, she knows almost immediately you know what's going on yeah so i've been sketching out some character themes and trying to get a little bit ahead of the game to try to have a, a little bit of a library ahead of time to to see if it works at when we get the the recordings and the editing done so but it's 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 come it it's fun and it's coming together really nicely what uh what would you say are the challenges of bringing uh this graphic novel to audio um to audio form uh in terms of story-wise or um you know uh, switching you know from visual medium to an audio medium um well there there are always the the challenges in adaptation. And my personal first rule of thumb is to make sure that I fully understand the other creator's sandbox and I'm playing in their sandbox. Um, recent work that's actually coming up. Uh, uh, that, that's actually bone meal. It's not sand. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we have a, we adapted um, Eugene O'Neill's play Anna Christie. Uh, that'll be out in June on Audible. And um, there, uh, I threw out O'Neill's entire first act. Um, 
and did some condensing and uh, theater fans and O'Neill fans want his words, but for a modern listener, the exposition really started in act two. And then it was uh, compression and condensing to make it two hours and not four hours. Um, we just, I just finished uh, an adaptation of a play, uh, a horror sci-fi comedy thing that has Debbie Rashawn in it called I Married a Fly. And uh, that's a two hour play, but the decision was to make it a 74 minute audio drama. And so there was a lot of horse trading with the playwright to make sure that his character's visions and the scenes were there. But there had to be some things done because, um, and it was easy to find a narrator within I Married a Fly. Now with Frankenstein Mobster, yeah, it's, um, it's a graphic novel. It's, it's visual. It's as visual as the dialogue and as uh, Mark's uh, descriptions of, and, and the world, for people who don't know Frankenstein Mobster, it is this alternate weird universe that is somewhere in the 1940s, 1950s, I dare say early 1960s, uh, a, a it's a crime fiction populated by crooked gangsters, mobsters, cops, and monsters. Uh, monsters from across mythology. It's a fabulous kind of thing. And um, so as I'm circling the material now, it's trying to play within the world that Mark Wheatley created and not just, okay, now we've got two pages of visual action and a lot of rat-a-tat-tat, and not just let a narrator carry that weight. Because um, then it's sort of an audio book with uh, some dialogue. Um, so it's really trying to find uh, the ways to take the dialogue in the scenes and let them uh, really live. We do have Jennifer's sound design music also telling the story. Now, the final thing I'll say about Jen's music and, and what she's been playing with, I am musically stupid. I can tap, I can hum, I have a kazoo here in the room um but i cannot talk music very easily so i i i throw things at her i say what if what i you know it's the equivalent of a director who doesn't know how to direct actors he says you know faster slower louder softer right. and, <laughs> and so right now we're circling this crime world that is um i keep snapping back to and we have shared favorite composers but you know, I'll say, you know, there's these cues from the untouchables. You know, there is Elfman's Dick Tracy. You know, there is because it's cops and mobsters. And then there is specific characters. Like, what do you do about the cab driver who is a mummy? Does he have a little touch, a little flavor of some kind of Egyptian color behind him? And uh, then there is some surprises that will come along the way. Mark Wheatley has written a song. Uh, a piece of music that is uh, specifically thematic to Terry Todd, the Frankenstein mobster. Um, so it's just, so that's my approach to adaptation is to really try to respect the material, but make it work for theater of the mind, theater of the ears, so that it's not, and, and I loved the Neil Gaiman audiobook Sandman or audio drama Sandman, but it was, it played a little safe for me. It was very much an audiobook with some 
dialogue and music, great music, but I think you could take a step further to make it its own animal. And then uh, you've got a graphic novel, you've got an audio drama, and I keep my fingers crossed that there's one day a movie. <laughs> so yeah, this is not just going to be like, like in the old days, listening to like having that comic and that record and listening, you know, having the book and record set, right? <laughs> well, we're we're all we're all three talking about right now exactly. I've got a you know I've got Frankenstein mobster right here, the graphic novel, and it's full of post-it notes about where the little dings go to turn the page. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I used to love those. I used to love those though. They were mm-hmm. awesome. That's a, that's a merchandising project we're talking about for the future. For <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And we are trying to make a double album thing with the Kickstarter. Oh, yes, right. I saw that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Vinyl. Yeah. Well, it just seems mm-hmm. right. I mean, it, you know, the whole thing is set in the kind of 1950s feel. So the idea of a vinyl yeah. mm-hmm. just seems so perfect for it. Yeah. And, and I've been, and I love that idea from Wheatley to let's try to do a, a multiple double album set, an LP, because I've been threatening to do that through Redfield Arts Audio. Uh, for a couple of years now, and I just I want some LPs. Maybe the maybe the children's junior page thing we could do like little forty five. <laughs> in the last <laughs> certainly, like in the last what is it decade since LPs and albums have vinyl has made a comeback. It's so amazing to see, especially for you know us us old folks, right? Which grew up with vinyl and uh, oh, yeah. the experience of having something tangible in your hand like that, especially a double album where you can open it up and just stare at it while you're listening. That experience is amazing. And, and to think that that might carry over to this project. Um, oh, oh yeah. Plus the visuals I'd be able to do. For yeah. mm-hmm. Oh, the interior spread would be great. And then uh, Mark, what we should do is when, when it's out next year, on social media, we should get people to send us pictures of them lying on their floor of their bedroom <laughs> uh, with the album yeah. spread out. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, pictures of their cat riding around on the um, Sticking with the music for a minute, uh, Jennifer, what uh, to, to sort of go with what Mark was saying, what are some of the audio cues or audio inspirations that you're probably in, incorporating into this work? I'm listening to some. Danny Elfman, right. like you mentioned, um, Dick Tracy soundtrack, Batman soundtrack for like the sort of a Gotham-ish kind of sound, um, some surfer type music, because that's sort of what Mark Wheatley's song kind of <laughs> sounds like, it, you know, <laughs> like Tarantino type sure. style. So it's going to be all mixed in there. <laughs> yeah, I was actually aiming for like a Stan Ridgeway mosquito. <laughs> There is this oh, weird tie be awesome. between like be rockabilly really awesome. and monster stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, rockabilly. Like, yes. like, yeah, I, yeah. I love yeah, that. Yeah. I love Absolutely. that tie. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. definitely. And every time we, Jen and I, talk about a project, we really do talk about character and, um, you know, where, where these sounds. And I think there should be no fear about, because uh, we haven't yet uh, had fear about you know, mixing music up a bit. It because it it never ceases to amaze me that you can be so um, out of period, so sort of what's the word I'm looking for, and it works. It just often just works. Um, and uh, so this will be uh, rich and flavorful, I think. Nice, nice. 
Um, <laughs> let's talk about, because you guys are, are, like you mentioned, this is uh, funding through Kickstarter, which is going on right now. What are some of the rewards that you guys are excited about? Well, we've got a lot of uh, cool things. First of all, uh, we have a number of digital rewards that everybody gets, and that includes uh, 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 screensavers and um, uh, some audio pieces. But uh, I'm also looking forward to being able to include a uh, signed uh, limited edition print that uh, Adam Hughes drew, uh, signed by Adam and myself. And uh, we also have some portfolios coming up, uh, mini prints, and uh, a lot of really cool stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's a combination of sounds and visuals that really makes this thing come to life. And uh, if you just go on the page, I mean, one of the, you know, the only complaint we had when we were setting this thing up from Kickstarter was that we were offering too many. Is that rewards. possible? And so, <laughs> well, I mean, I just recommend people go take a look at the page and see what's up for offer because we do have an offer. Yeah. <laughs> Print, art, uh, uh, digital stories, uh, sounds, songs, all sorts of cool stuff. There, there is one category that I'm alarmed about. Um, <laughs> and that is that there, and I, I don't remember the dollar amount, but um, <clears throat> you uh, pitch in, you, you, you join the campaign, and you can get a part in the show. Right. <laughs> and, um, so I've written, a, <clears throat> I've written a scene that Mark has yet to approve where there is a <laughs> platoon of mimes. <laughs> really that i gotta say narrator says and then terry todd took out his machine gun and then jennifer takes over with bah, 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 bah. <laughs> and everybody's happy so no it's uh it's uh uh it is a great cluster of rewards that are you know from uh other artists that have um done renditions of terry todd the frankenstein mobster and uh, uh, books and things, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it, and it, and it's true. Oh, yeah, we, we got... It's true. There were some things that we uh, Mark pulled out mm. uh, just prior to launch because uh, maybe it's a little too much. Okay, oh, that's why you have stretch goals, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's what stretch goals are for. Um, so yeah, so the the Kickstarter is going on now. Um, it is being written and and pre production is in in place right now, right? It's a yeah. Casting will be yeah. begin soon, I would imagine. And that's the only thing um, I don't want to talk about is casting because Mark and I have been talking about that from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I will play several characters. Jen will play a character. I have cast one actor um, and um, we'll mention names when we get close to recording, sure. but the, uh, oh. there is a, um, there's a young girl in the story that is very important that has um in the early chapter has a few scenes and i i found this wonderful actor um that is going to be doing several things with us in the future because she is if she after theater school she could be the next june foray she's just got beautiful oh, wonderful wow. voice without pushing or trying she can sound like a, a child and uh, she's a pretty good actor. So I've got her lined up for some things. And then when Frankenstein Mobster got the green light for an audio drama, um, she was the first person on my list. Uh, Izzy for Yasmini is what I wrote down. So. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
but we'll 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 be talking about casting in the summer. Sure. We're, we're I think one of the interesting things that we're dealing with about casting is that when we started thinking about actually casting for the role of Frankenstein Mobster, it suddenly hit us that we're really talking about four separate characters. Because Frankenstein Mobster, the concept behind Frankenstein Mobster is that he's a really good policeman who was killed and then brought back to life in a body sewn together with parts of three other mobsters and that dead policeman. And all four of these characters share the body and the voices are constantly battling for control. So, it's, I mean, you could see it as a single actor who had a lot of range doing all the different voices, but you could also see it as four different actors. So. We're still playing with that and seeing how. Yeah, how I was going to say that seems up. like it would be that would be tricky to pull off as far as being able to determine as a listener which voice is which, uh, getting an audio cue with that right. way, and yet having it still sound like it's coming from the same character. That that boy, Mark, well, you're up for a challenge right. on that one. <laughs> well, and you know when you're when you're at this stage and you're working on the adaptation, you start to hear actor you start to hear famous actors in your head and that gives you kinds of clues i mean obviously it's character i mean the three other voices in terry todd's head are gangsters they're bad guys and they're very distinct and so you could cast them you know from dead warner brothers gangster actors mm-hmm. for instance. I mean, there's all kinds <laughs> of fun things and and to jump back on something we talked about and people who come in on kickstarter and join us and contribute, they'll get an MP3, right? Or an MP4, what do they get? Which is, which is an MP3, which is very good sound. <laughs> but because that very thing of the voices, the four voices, the one that is up front coming through Terry's mouth and the other three that are in her head, in his head, and by the way, there's two Terry's, there's a he and a she, but anyway, the point is, <laughs> is that that's where I want to, to hear this thing in stereo so that we can have these guys, if you're wearing headphones, right. you can have these four guys talking in there and then there's, that, that, that's, that's just technically exciting to me. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, it's exciting for all of us and exciting to have you guys back here and, and, and talking about this project. We're very excited about it. Where can people go to find out more information? Uh, go to Kickstarter and look for Frankenstein Mobster. Awesome. Awesome. And real quick, uh, you can promote your personal pages as well. Uh, Mark Wheatley, we'll start with you. I'm markwheatleygallery.com. Awesome. And Mark Redfield? I would love for you to come visit us at redfieldartsaudio.com. Awesome. And Jennifer? And like Mark said, redfieldartsaudio.com. And my personal website is jenniferrouse.com. And we will have... Links to all of those in the show notes as well. So thanks, you guys. Thanks so, so much for coming on the station. Great talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's take a quick break, and we will be looking all about the world of Jim Steinman. Hi, this is Ashley Pauls with this week's Box Office Buzz. I got a chance to go to the movie theaters this past weekend, which is traditionally a big weekend at the box office. And it was really interesting to see 
Of course, definitely not the same level as crowds as pre-COVID, but this is probably the biggest amount of people I'd seen at the theater since COVID. And it's just good to see people getting vaccinated and to see local theaters being supported because I was very worried about how they would bounce back and be able to weather COVID and having decreased business. So it's good to see people still supporting the movies. I ended up going to see the Disney villain origin story, Cruella. I'm still wanting to see A Quiet Place Part 2, but that one is understandably slightly more intense and scary. So I was in the mood for something a little bit lighter. Actually ended up really enjoying Cruella. I will say that... If you're looking at it strictly as an origin story for Cruella from this animated film, 101 Dalmatians, it doesn't necessarily quite fit. Like, I feel like she's just not, like, flat out as evil in this origin live action as she is in the animated movie. But if you take this live action as sort of inspired by the characters in the animated movie, I think it works pretty well. It's got elements of the fashion industry, a retro setting, some fun heists, cool characters. It's a good time. It's not anything particularly deep, but I enjoyed it. It's a fun family film. And I'm excited that we're going to be covering other fun movies coming up this summer. Of course, we have the Black Widow movie, uh, Jungle Cruise with Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt actually looks way more fun than it has any right to be. I just saw the new trailer that came out, and it's funny because out of all the theme park rides in Disney World, somebody said, let's make a movie about Jungle Cruise. My first thought would have been, really? But this actually looks like it could be kind of some good old-fashioned fun. So it's nice to be getting back to the movies and getting some of that summer blockbuster fun that we've all been missing. That's it for this week. If you're looking for more entertainment-related content, be sure to check out my blog on the ESO Podcast website. I'm Drew Leiter. And I'm Cletus Jacobs. Join us this winter as we watch changes in the DC Universe unfold. We'll keep you informed on DC News, we'll review the future state event, and of course, we'll be talking the Arrowverse shows when they return this January. Thanks for letting us be a part of your DC Comics journey. And thanks for listening to the Earth Station DCU podcast. Part of the ESO Network. Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to Earth Station One. And now we are here to talk all about the late Jim Steinman. It's been, you know, if you don't recognize the name, you will recognize the songs, folks. And this is going to be an interesting one. And it's going to be a really, I think it's going to be a good conversation. Take it away, Mikey. Yeah, um, definitely. Uh, Unfortunately, we lost uh, James Richard Steinman uh, in uh, early April, uh, mid-April. So, um, and since then, um, you know, um, we have our um, rock blogger here, uh, Michelle, here to talk about him, as well as the movie, as far as our music crew, uh, Ricky and Bambi. Welcome to the show, guys. Yeah, meow. Hello. Hi. Hi. And uh, Michelle and I were talking about Jim Steinman and if we should do, if she should do a segment on him, uh, you know, one of her iconic rock 
segments or what. And the more we talked about it, the more we were like, you know, there's a lot here. We should devote a whole show to him. So, uh, so that's where we are. Um, and yes, as Mike said, if you are not aware of the name, uh, you will be aware of the music. It's kind of impossible to get around of hearing at least, I don't know, five of his songs, maybe <laughs> like, like they're like as a, as a, as a writer, producer, and even sometimes performer. Uh, Jim Steinman has been a force, um, and he's a very unique force, I think, um, in in the industry. So um, we're gonna we're gonna start with you, Bambi. Um, do you recall um, the first either Jim Steinman song that you've heard, or um, like the first time you were aware of him? Well, the first time I was aware of him um, was when you asked if I would do this show. <laughs> that's fair that's fair <laughs> so i had to i had to look him up what's funny is when i i looked him up uh i actually recognized his photo but i don't know from where other than it's probably something with meatloaf so i'm guessing maybe meatloaf because i knew uh i know bad out of hell obviously it feels like everybody does should and yeah. totally clips to the heart i mean yeah that i didn't know he was involved with that yep so i guess yep. those yeah, I mean that's that's where I mean Bad Out of Hell was the first uh real album that I think he uh worked on, uh co-wrote or wrote for Meatloaf, I think. Um and that album was produced by Todd Rundgren. And that's where a lot of people were introduced to Jim Simon, um, I think. Uh certainly on a bigger scale. Uh so yeah, that definitely fits. Um uh for I, I can't even remember if I heard that song first or you know, as far as my meatloaf memories goes, I know he was, I, I remember seeing him in Rocky Horror, but I'm pretty sure I knew who he was before when I saw Rocky Horror. I was like, oh, that's meatloaf. And I knew that because I had seen the video for Bad Out of Hell. And plus the radio stations in, in New England, uh, in the Boston area were playing, had played that just constantly. Um, uh, it wasn't, I, I don't think when it came out, I was aware of it, but certainly over the years, I became aware of that one. Um but uh, Ricky, what about you? Well, the the first time I was aware of him was because of the Meatloaf album. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure that was probably the first time I heard any of his songs as well. But uh, making love out of nothing at all was certainly played a lot sure. when it came out, and. Um, I, you know, he had a, a lot of songs that I was familiar with, but I didn't know that he had written those until much more recently. Yeah, even I think that's what, um, you know, when Michelle and I were talking about him and I was looking into uh, sort of like the same thing with Bambi, I was looking into, you know, more about him and I realized, oh, wow, he's worked with Barry Manilow, he's worked with Cher, he's worked with Billy Squire, he's worked with um, Celine Dion, he's worked with like, um, <laughs> sisters of mercy um which i completely forgot um we'll talk about all that later but um um yeah it was definitely something that i was like man if people aren't aware of this this is a good show to do because it'll bring attention to i, I think a lot of that so so michelle what about you when when you was your first meatloaf or i should say jim steinman experience uh bad out of hell came sure. out when i was in in high school um and then it was my senior year. To be fair, when you when that came out, were you aware of Jim Steinman's influence or input on it, or was it just the meatloaf thing? Uh, to be honest, I am not sure, but I do remember when he 
put out his one and only album. Um, I knew who he was, and my local uh, album rock station played um, Rock and Roll Dreams Come Through. Um, and I recognized at the time that he was the guy behind Meatloaf. I think I saw that back cover of Bad Out of Hell and knew that Jim Steinman was the guy um, on there. So I think I had some peripheral awareness. Yeah, because Jim Steinman's name is on the album cover. I mean, yeah. he made sure that, I mean, it was supposed mm-hmm. to be, I think, Jim Steinman and Meatloaf like getting mm-hmm. credit, but the way they worked it out is Meatloaf in big letters and yeah. Jim Steinman in little letters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, and that sowed the seeds for dissension and a, and a fun, rocky relationship throughout their career, I think. Um, not to hear Meatloaf, though. No, not to hear him. But then again, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not saying I don't trust the things that Meatloaf says, <laughs> but, you know, there are, he says they never sued one another, but there actually are, like, actually report, there, there are actual facts out there. He said that it was there. management companies, according to Meatloaf. Yeah, it could have been. It could have been. Who knows? Um, but anyway, uh, Mike, what about you? Um, probably about the same time, like, Michelle did. It had to be bad out of hell because my parents were big hippies and they were doing the whole, you know, the rock scene. And I was fascinated by the cover of the motorcycle, you know, coming out of the grave. And it was just like, wow. And then the music not matching up what I thought it would be. And it was, Meatloaf was just awesome. You know, I didn't see Rocky Horror until I was, I think actually my 18th birthday was my first time going to see Rocky Horror in Georgetown. And and just for the, just to throw that out there, Jim Steinman didn't have no, anything. no, not not at all. No, <laughs> just want to make it just clear. for <laughs> context with Meatloaf and stuff like that. But right, right. no, so I knew who Meatloaf was already by that point, though, when I went to go see it, mm-hmm. and you know, so it made even the joke, you know, during Rocky Horror, oh no, Meatloaf again, you know, even better, right, you know, right. So, but it was the the album was just so amazing, you know, probably being junior high when it came out. You know, and then finding out, you know, uh, then finding out everything that, you know, Jim was working on at the time. Because then within a year or two, then, you know, Total Eclipse of the Heart came out. Then, you know, Making Love Out of Nothing at All, you know, you know, then, you know, you know, hanging, you know, doing the hero song, you know. And it's just like boom, 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 boom. It was just like, oh, this is another Jim. And you could tell, you know, it was dramatic. The drama that he, you know, and bigness of all the music that he did was just, it was just amazing. Yeah, that's uh, definitely his signature on almost all his songs that I'm aware of now. Um, But like you guys, I mean, I, I, Bad Out of Hell, and particularly um, Paradise by the Dashboard Light, was, was the song that introduced me to his work. But I didn't know that Steinman had anything to do with that. I didn't. I don't think I was aware of his name. I would say I probably wasn't aware of his name until um, Bad Out of Hell Two came out, and then I was like, okay, so the guy, the guys that did the first album, uh, are doing another one, and that's cool. And oh, oh man, that guy, that other guy's done a lot of other stuff. So. I was aware of him, even though I was aware of his music, the songs that he was writing and producing for other people, I didn't know that he was behind that. I didn't, and I didn't know of his solo stuff. Um, so 
um, yeah, I probably, then I started tracking, you know, then I started, was aware after Bad Out of Hell 2, because, you know, that was a big, that was a big deal. And I definitely want to talk about that. But um, Michelle, is there anything that we should mention prior to, about Steinman prior to Bad Out of Hell, the first uh, album that he worked on uh, that was released uh, sort of worldwide um, that of, of, of note? Or should we start with that? Um, well, an interesting thing is um, he was a theater major um, at Amherst College in Massachusetts, and he graduated in 69, and um, right out of college, he had the attention of Joseph Papp, and for many years, Joseph Papp was, was Broadway in the United States. I mean, he was the guy. Um, and for for a college graduate, I mean, right out of school to have that kind of uh, attention, that's that's big. Um, he had written a, a musical called The Dream Machine um, that got Pap's attention. And um, I think Pap wanted to produce that. It was never produced. Uh, he got involved with a musical called Souvenirs, which was then changed to More Than You Deserve, which had Fred Gwynn and a very young Mary Beth Hurd in it. Um, and that's where he met Meatloaf. And then he wrote a, a musical called um, Kid Champion that had Christopher Walken in it. So right off the bat, I mean, before Bat Out of Hell, he was working with some big, big names. And I think the most important thing about that, too, is that um, Jim Steinman is theatrical. like i mean that's something that carries across i think into all of his music i mean he said every every song he writes is a movie i could see it i totally could see that yeah yeah um um okay so he meets meatloaf they decide to work together uh they you know he writes um uh bad out of hell uh, jim steinman writes bad out of hell all the songs on there are written by jim steinman um meatloaf has i think some input right yeah yeah. if you don't believe in fate or destiny think about the story of of meatloaf and jim steinman because meatloaf was auditioning for a part in more than you deserve and steinman was looking for somebody that could actually get his songs across and in the door walks meatloaf i mean if you don't believe in fate (laughs) Mm -hmm. look at that um and the songs from Bad Out of Hell were um, Jim Steinman's, like, his lifelong pet project that he really wanted to do was a post-apocalyptic retelling of Peter Pan. And I think all the songs on ba- on the first Bad Out of Hell are songs from that project because he could not get any clearance to use that story. But it sounds like when you listen to Bad Out of Hell, it's all, all the songs seem to be connected. They're all mm-hmm. thematically connected. The music mm-hmm. is very, um, you know, similar in, in, in tone to all of the, uh, the through, across the whole album. So therefore, you know, it feels like it could be, I mean, it was later made into a musical mm-hmm. and you could easily see why, I mean, yes, it sounds like it could be the soundtrack to a musical mm-hmm. yeah. and because it's, it's got that kind of big, bold sound to it. Um, uh that i i think that it's hard to like once you hear it and then you hear other songs that steinman does you're like oh yeah that's the steinman song like i don't know if he really strays from that kind of (laughs) presentation ever (laughs) um 
But um, so our, I take it everybody here is familiar with the at least or some songs off the album, if not the whole album of Bad Out of Hell. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. OK. Um, is what Ricky, what, what about Bad Out of Hell um, strikes you as, as, as an album? Uh, the amount of time it took to get the album, to get anybody interested in the album, uh, to get it out to the public. And um, I mean, that's probably not exactly what you're asking. No, no, it's a fair point. It's one I was going to bring up. So good. But I think, uh, just, it kind of gives you an idea of how much these guys really wanted this to happen, that they just kept at it and kept at it and kept at it until they finally finished the album and were able to finally, after being turned down by so many people, they were finally able to get it out. Yeah, this is one of those things where they kept approach record labels. They approached record label after record label after record label with, you know, the genesis of, you know, rough draft of of these songs. And all of the record labels were like, nah, it's not not going to work. That's not what we do. Um, you know, rock songs can't be more than three and a half minutes. Right. You guys <laughs> don't know what you're doing. <laughs> exactly. Like, um, particularly, I remember, um, uh, or I heard somebody say, particularly about uh, Paradise by the Dashboard Light, like, that is the opposite of, like, anything that we would ever put on the radio. Like, yeah. if, if you take everything that would that a hit song needs, like, this track has none of those things. <laughs> and 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 yet um but it's the same argument that we heard when that producers made of uh queen and bohemian rhapsody right? bohemian rhapsody apparently taught them nothing <laughs> yeah. i think in one case was it even the same guy that they was approached on about both of those uh i don't know there's he they tell a story about clive davis gotcha they auditioned for clive davis and he said let me tell you how to write a hit song yeah that's not a hit song that's no one near a hit song let me tell you what a hit song needs and he's like going through stuff and it's like yeah that's not what we do (laughs) um so let me ask you ricky so why is bad at hell like so good if it's not like you know traditionally what you would think of as a as a hit album well i think so often, and this has been the case going back to the earliest days of rock and roll, so often what people fall in love with isn't necessarily the formula. It's just the formula is what they're presented with all the time. So we aren't usually given the opportunity to like something. And it's changed a lot now with the internet. We can go out and find music much more easily. But in general, I'd say from the the fifties up through the nineties, we had a limited amount of what was offered to us on the radio or on television. And uh, all these people say, this isn't what a hit song looks like, or this isn't what a hit song sounds like. That's only because you guys have been controlling what people hear and what is given the opportunity to be a hit. So I would say they're just really solid songs and they don't fit the typical uh, expectations of a hit rock song, but there've been a lot of hit rock songs that have been really bad songs that were just put on the radio and played so much and they have a hook 
they get stuck in your head. And so a lot of people go out and buy them. But I think with these songs, they're just really good songs that don't fit into the mold. And so people who wanted something different so desperately were able to get it with this album. But it was also at a time when radio was probably at a more experimental period. Uh, A lot of things got on the radio in the 70s that I don't think would have either before or after. One of the things I noticed too is it's it's almost, it it has a different approach to, I guess, a hit song in that it's almost comedic. It's got a topical thing that people touch on. It's theatrical, but kind of comedic. You know, like the topic, like talking about paradise, the whole, he he wants to go farther, but she's demanding that he prove his love before she goes any farther. Right. You know, that's, that's kind of funny. Yeah, then yeah. They, oh, I think it's funny. Oh, so I and think definitely you, the way it's presented. Yeah. So oh, I yeah. think. And, it, and many people in high school have been in that position. <laughs> so, it, very and then fun. they both can't stand each other. It, it totally hit that sweet spot of being relatable but lighthearted and not too heavy, you know, heavy handed on it. Right. And Meatloaf can really sing. Oh yeah. He can. The the girl that was on that. I mean, I know he had a, there was apparently a battle between who actually claimed the rights of being the singer, the female vocalist, because one girl sang it live and one was on the album and there was apparently a lot of drama, you know, no pun intended. Yeah. Well, the the one that was on the album ended up being on Night Court. Yeah. Uh, she became an actress and she was on the first season, first two seasons of Night Court, I think. First yeah. season, I think, because Marky Post came in the next one. Yeah, yeah. And that's that always blew my mind. I was like, what? That's crazy. But yes, well, to confuse matters more, I mean, the video that you see, the woman who's in the video is not the woman who's actually singing on the track. So. Yeah. She's slipped singing it. So, and my understanding is that they get along now. All parties get along now. But there yeah, was sort yeah. of some drama there. They just put out a record together. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Of I course. Think one, I, think, I think the one that was in the video is the one that sang with Meatloaf on tour. And she that went was on tour. Her. That, yeah, was, that was Carla DeVito, who I don't know if anybody remembers, but she's married to a guy named Robbie Benson. Yeah, I remember Robbie Benson. <laughs> They've been married for like a zillion years. They have grandchildren together. Um, but I think you guys all hit on things that I think also make Bad Out of Hell as an album and all the tracks on it um, work is because the songs are relatable. Um, they're fun to listen to. Rock and roll should be fun. Um, the music is amazing. It's epic in scope, but also has a beat that you can like, you know, you can dance to it as the as Dick Clark used to say, like, you know, it's got a beat. We can dance to it. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and Meatloaf's vocals are amazing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, I think it's fair to say that one other constant of all Jim Steinman songs is that you need one hell of a good vocalist to pull them off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, most popular songs that I can think of, uh, that he's an artist that he's worked with all have amazing vocals. Uh, there's some that don't. They're not as successful with his songs, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, and I think, um, you know, personally, I think Paradise by the Dashboard Light is a, is a genius song. I think it's, it's amazing. Uh, It's the highlight of the album for me. Um, And, uh, and 
uh, Ricky, to your point, when I listened to it on the radio, because that's how I was first introduced to it, by then it was already a hit or had been a hit. So I didn't know that it was not what people were used to hearing before that. You know, it was just like, oh, that's just a song on the radio. So right. once a, once a song is a hit case. on the radio, like then it's like people don't know the difference. I think that's often the case, but uh, it's a behind the scenes thing. Yes, yes. And it's, and it's, you know, it's still done to this day in a lot of industries. It's just people, people who have money and who are in power don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to take risks. They know what works. They want to stick to what works. And if it doesn't seem like it fits in that box, they don't want to take the chance because they don't want to lose out on money. Right. In fact, it's gotten to the point now that in country music, the majority of the hits in country music follow the same chord progression. Yeah, And I mean, that's, it's ridiculous. There's so many different ways that you can arrange chords, yet all of these songs are following the same pattern. And something like Paradise by the Dashboard Lights, nothing like that at all. So even though we could spend the whole segment talking about Bad Out of Hell, um, I do want to talk about some of his other stuff. Um, because there's, you know, that's it. That's just the start of Simon's career. Um, after the success of that album, then he blows up. Like everybody wants to work with him, except Meatloaf. No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody wants to work with him. Um, and so he's, yeah, he works with, uh, Bonnie Tyler. He works with, uh, you know, I think, I don't know if he worked directly with Air Supply or if they just like got the rights to use his song. No, he he worked with them. He okay. said he said they were the most boring people he'd ever met. Okay, well you know I think uh, sounds about right. <laughs> I think you know. Don't uh, tell Kevin I for chat though. But, you know, uh, he's still pushing for them to get in the uh, Hall of Fame. Um, but uh, uh, and we don't have time to go through everything. So Michelle, what's a highlight that you want to mention uh, post um, Bad at Hell career? Uh, for Jim Steinman, what's something that you can that you want to uh, make people aware of, or that you appreciate? Um, one thing that I have absolutely loved over the last month is uh, if you go to YouTube and put in Rory, Rory Dodd, R O R Y. That's hard to say. Rory Dodd, um, making love out of nothing at all. Rory was one of the um, background vocalists on the original Bad Out of Hell tour, and they had a kick-ass band on that tour. It's amazing. Um, And he did demos for Jim for years and lots of background vocals. He is the male, the uh, high male vocal on um, Total Eclipse. Um, But he does the demo version of Making Love Out of Nothing at All, and it's Steinman on piano and him on vocals, and it's just brilliant um you can find a lot of really weird uh demos on youtube for steinman lots of his old musical stuff and i'm telling you it's really strange oh yeah Um, his uh we were watching um one of his uh for his solo album one of his videos music Mm -hmm. videos my god (laughs) that is (laughs) oh it is weird very weird (laughs) very strange he was a strange guy i picture him being kind of like a little uh niles crane when he was he said when he was nine years old uh he listened to the entire wagner ring cycle of operas very few nine-year-olds do that 
but you can hear it in yeah, his music. Yeah. You can because it hasn't he been called like um, the little Richard Wagner. Yeah, he's been called like the 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 creator of Wagner and rock, rock. Yeah, he said he listened to opera. He listened to Phil Spector records and saw no difference between them. Yeah. So. Uh, Bambi, what about you? What's a, another uh, a piece of Steinman's work that um, uh, connects with you? Anna of the Paradise. Ah, yes. The, the album that he works on. Uh, did he do the music for that or produced it? Or what did he do for that? He did. And he, recyc- he, he recycled some music he did for a movie. And Making Love Out of Nothing at All was part of that. Okay. The music he Oh, so that's on that? that, that yeah. It's been so long since yeah. I've seen that movie or he, heard it. He recycled shamelessly. Yeah. Movie that- was gloriously terrible. I loved it. <laughs> I always think of Paul Williams when I think of that movie. Yeah. I was, I was going to ask. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure they used his music, but he did an entire soundtrack worth of demos. I, I don't know if it was ever used, yeah. but. I was yeah. just like, oh, he was involved with that? That was great. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, there was a lot of things that he got involved with and then didn't or whatever. I know that uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, asked him to work with him, uh, Steinman, on Phantom of the Opera, but that didn't happen. Later on, they would do a musical together uh, called... Um, Whistle Down the Wind. Whistle Down the Wind, right, that um, that they would work on together. But yeah, can you imagine them on Phantom? I, I can't. It would have been yeah. amazing. I guess um, I should... I should point out, I guess, saying really touched with me. I love the story, and I don't know how real it is, but I love the myth of it, if it if it's a myth, of uh, Total Eclipse of the Heart was actually supposed to be a puppet vampire song or something like that. Hmm. And I, when I looked up the stuff on Steinman, it does reference that it was, he, he wrote it about... Uh, vampires it was a vampire like love story mm. but i didn't see the mention of a puppet show or anything like that yeah, I, I hadn't heard puppets yeah i don't know where i heard that but in my head it's always puppet vampires singing to yeah. each other yeah, he, he did work on a on a musical called dance to the vampires that i think did mediocre in europe but on broadway it was one of the biggest flops of all time and he got booted wow. out of the theater so yeah wow. like, he liked his vampires even worse than the spider-man musical i mean really bad really bad wow <laughs> that was uh, it made the spider-man musical look really really and good. What, the spider-man musical had he, music by you too he was supposed to do a, a batman musical oh right man <laughs> that would have been wow see that's just a lot of things that he yeah that could have been um ricky what about you what's something about his career that uh speaks to you well i actually have a question about the vampire musical (laughs) was uh the vampire musical puppet theater experience in uh forgetting sarah marshall a reference to that i had wondered that i don't know that reference sorry i know that the the dance of the vampires musical um was actually um a musical remake of the roman plansky movie the fearless mm-hmm. vampire killers huh. so um uh and it was it was it was in the 90s uh late 90s that it was produced so i don't know if it has any relationship to uh forgetting sarah marshall michael crawford was in it the phantom oh yeah and well there's apparently it was such it was so bad and such a flop that they said it, it destroyed his broadway career he never. Wow. He was never on Broadway again. That bad. 
I have a, I have a, I have a question right back at you, Ricky. Um, have, first of all, have you guys ever covered any Steinman songs that you know of? Uh, not, not well. <laughs> That was going to be my follow-up question. When, when somebody writes these songs that are so epic in scope and they're produced like, you know, when you listen to the production of them on the albums, it's just so full and rich of, of various tracks and things that you cannot even hope to recreate on stage. How do you simplify and minimalize an epic song uh, like something that Steinman would do in a way that would be satisfying to people listening to it? Well, I can't answer that question. As you guys know, I'm a really big fan of the Ramones. Right. And uh, if you listen to a lot of the songs that the Ramones covered, they break down uh, a lot of Phil Spector type songs that, that were pretty complicated pop songs from the 50s and 60s, they break those down into four chord punk rock songs. Because a lot of times you've got a vocal melody and you've got chords under them. And the chords can be simplified to power chords, which means they're neither major nor minor chords. It's just a very stripped down way of playing a chord. So you can really take complicated music and simplify it for rock. And that's what we've been doing for years. So on the few occasions that I have tried to play one of his songs, uh, it's been a request that I've received on stage. I've had no preparation at all. And uh, so we just sort of butcher our way through it. Sometimes it's a terrible disaster and we regret even trying. And sometimes it goes really badly. <laughs> wow. That's giving yourself credit there, man. That really is. I can't think of any songs specifically right now, but I do know that there are songs out there that it is like the production of the song is actually more important than the song itself. There have been those songs where you take out the production and people won't know the song. That is yeah. true. Yeah, yeah, that is true. I, I do find that, you know, a lot of the rough, material that we saw uh, on youtube with steinman um when it comes down to it when he i think when he writes it's just him and a piano mm-hmm. so i mean talk about stripped down and simple and yet you can still hear like this the epicness of it yep. just because i think the piano is is an instrument that can carry that weight of mm-hmm. of an epic song right well it's often said that the best songs can be broken down to just a guitar part and a vocal melody. Yep. Mm-hmm. I would say if you can meow it, then it's probably a, a good song. <laughs> you, can, you know, hum or meow the melody, then it's probably a really strong song. I would like to hear a Jim Steinman song played on a rake. <laughs> they, they can make that happen. <laughs> Rakers don't be choosers. You're probably going to get that, Ethan. <laughs> Uh, Mike, what about you? What uh, is something from Steinman's career that uh, has uh, spoken to you since that first album? Well, it has to be his work with Bonnie Tyler. It really has to be, you know, the different songs, because it it just wasn't, you know, Total Eclipse of the Heart. It was also Holding Out for a Hero. And it's just amazing, because each one tells us 
as he said, it, it's almost like making a movie. It's huge. These are grand stories. And these are just like, it's just amazing. And then the videos to go along with it, you know, it's just like poor Bonnie Tyler, you know, she goes from being around possessed kids to being in the middle of a Western, you know, and so and it's, it's just awesome. It is really, really awesome stuff. And, you know, it's the, the, the music, the, you know, the, almost like, you know, the having like the chorus behind it, you know, da, 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 you know, and it's, it's just, it's just, it's just amazing work that he does. Yeah. I think on that, uh, totally clips album, uh, he has like four or five songs that he, or does he, he didn't do all of it. I don't think. Um, I don't um, think he did all of it. I, I'm not sure how many songs he was on. He worked on faster than the speed of night. And, um, his titles are ones that you can pick out too. Yeah. Like, oh, that's a Jim Stein. He, he loves cliches. <laughs> turns <laughs> right. Um, and then um, Secret Dreams of Forbidden Fire. He worked on that one too. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, he worked with Bonnie Tyler, probably second to Meatloaf more than anybody else. Yeah. She was, Meatloaf and Bonnie are probably the greatest interpreters of his work. She asked to work with him. She went to a record label and said, I, want him to work with me and they said he's busy it's it's a long shot and you said okay wow well uh two of the things i want to mention uh that um um i was surprised when i came across his name uh with the sisters of mercy uh that's one thing i want to mention uh, the sisters of mercy uh goth band i love them uh, i love them in the uh, late 80s very mm-hmm. much so um and their big hit was, was that your, uh, I was like that your first... eyeshadow and black lipstick here? Am I... That was that was my that was my goth yes. phase. That was my goth phase. <laughs> uh, there's no pictures from that period, by the way, um, because they all make me sad. Um, but uh, no, um, I like the first album, uh, First Last Always. But then they did this. The album after that, Floodland, was huge. Yeah, was and amazing. this Dominion, uh, which is not a song that Simon wrote, but he produced. Uh, with uh, Andrew Eldritch, the lead singer of the band. Um, it's epic. It's like a Steinman, like, you know, epic chorus um, hook. It's over and over again. It's just, uh, it. you know, anybody who knows that track knows that it's it, it fits in the Steinman mold. Um, it's 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 definitely one you can dance to. Uh, hey, and then... Hey, no, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um Oh, it's just the chorus that starts like, oh, uh, like, yep. you know, like it's just so epic. And then uh, the album after that, uh, Steinman wrote a track called More uh, for them. And More was recorded, I think, later by uh, some other folks, too. But um, um, but it's it's a great Sisters of Mercy track as well. And you wouldn't think those two would go together, goth band and and Steinman, but yet they make it work. Um, but the other thing I have to mention and the more important thing I have to mention, I think, is Bad Out of Hell 2. Um, Bad Out of Hell 2 comes out um, in, what is it, 90s, right? It comes Late, out very in 93. Light. Really? That that early? I thought it was later. Yeah, 1993, Bad Out of Hell 2, Back in Hell, comes out in 93. Um, that's like, like, no, I don't know if anybody was wanting a sequel to Bad Out of Hell, but we, <laughs> but, getting it anyway. but we got one and sometimes 
that doesn't work. You know, sometimes you're like, oh, well, thanks for this thing that we didn't want. But Bad Out of Hell 2 came out with a bang. I mean, it is uh, powerful. I think it's a lot more, um, uh, I think it's a little safer than the first album as far as the tracks are more radio friendly. Yeah, it's just they're more pop friendly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's also because Steinman and them had changed the dynamic so much that you were kind of used to, like, there was a lot of imitators, so that this sounded a lot more familiar. But, you know, the first track off of it is um, uh, um, I Would Do Anything for Love, but, uh, but I Won't Do That. Um, you know, they make a video for it, and it skyrockets, and this album becomes, like, the biggest thing uh you know since bad out of hell right i mean it just is a a huge um what do you guys feel about i mean and i personally uh man i can't get that song out of my head that uh whenever i think of jim steinman that's the song that hits my head and i keep repeating in my head and i can't get it out over and over and over again is uh um uh that um i would do anything for love song um but there was a a few other hits on it too uh michelle what is your feelings about bad out of hell too I don't know it as well as as the first album, but it what's what's interesting is that neither the one or two I mean they're neither one of them is of the time they were recorded. They are both totally outside of anything else that exists at the time. And twice, lightning struck twice, and they were able to make huge hits out of it. Not too many people can do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Bambi, what about you? What about, what do you feel about Bad Out of Hell 2? I only know I, uh, I do anything for love. Mm-hmm. That's it. I like, I really love that song. It's a great song, but that's my knowledge of that album. That actually may be the first song that I had heard of by Meatloaf. Not yeah. positive, but I think, you know, I think I heard it before I heard Paradise. Yeah, Rock and Roll Dreams Come True, I think, was the next big hit off that one. But um, I Do Anything for Love, yeah, that was, yeah, it was number one. It was number one in like 28 countries or something. Um, It was huge. Um, Ricky, what about you? Well, I get a kick out of the fact that a lot of those songs had already been released on his solo album. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I mean, for anyone who knows me, uh, <laughs> I have uh, I have done that a few times myself. Uh, re- released a song on different albums with different bands, mm-hmm. and um, keep, I keep, feel keep like running that play. Do you get it right? That's right. You know? <laughs> get that sweet spot. I I really do feel like uh, sometimes you have a song that just doesn't get the traction that you want it to get, and. Uh, the band Bad Religion actually did that with one of their bigger singles. They had released it on one of their albums and it didn't do that well. So they released it again on another album a few years later and it really wasn't that different, but it got a little bit more backing and they were a little bit bigger. And so the second time they had a minor hit with it. And I think um, in the case of Bad Out of Hell too, it really gave some songs. I mean, I think one of them had had a minor hit already i may be wrong about that but definitely not uh as many people would have heard it as heard it when it was on bad out of hell too because that album just sold so well. 
So I, I think that 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 is the thing about Bad Out of Hell 2 that stands out to me. That, and uh, I have a question. I know Meatloaf released a lot of albums in between Bad Out of Hell and Bad Out of Hell 2, but who were they written by? Well, um, I don't know the answer to that entirely. I do know that Meatloaf would sneak in a Jim Steinman song on most of his albums, whether it was with Jim's permission or not. But there, there were a couple with, there, there were a couple with the record label that they said you cannot use a Jim Steinman song. Oh. Oh really? So And nobody knows where those are. No, I think saying. Desmond Child wrote some. Oh, uh, he did work with Desmond various Child. Various writers, yeah, but nothing ever caught fire. Were those even released in the United States or were they just released in Europe? Um uh, yeah, I don't. He had like three or four albums that were just kind of there, like Midnight at the Lost and Found, and um, I can't even remember the names of the other ones. But there, there were there was a run of like three or four that were just kind of there until he, until they did uh, Bat Two. Yeah, out of you know, if it's not written by Steinman, I think the only other Meatloaf song that anybody really cares about is the one from Rocky Horror. <laughs> he, he, had a, he had a minor hit with a song called Modern Girl that's actually very good and in this kind of in the Steinman mold. Gotcha. Gotcha. Were you guys aware of those other albums before Bad Out of Two Bad Out of Hell Two came out? Nope. No. Nope. No. <laughs> nope. No. No, I met when Bad Out of Hell Two came out, it was literally like something coming like Bad Out of Hell coming out. Like yeah. it was like it, it came out like a Bad Out of Hell, literally. <laughs> it was like, what is who where have these guys been? Um yeah, it was it was out of nowhere. I mean, Milof and at that point I think he was acting more than I knew he was singing. He was in movies mm-hmm. and TV mm-hmm. stuff and he was on Highlander and all this kind of stuff. So, I think I thought he was more like into the acting stuff than um than he was really caring about his uh, musical career, so. Uh so uh Mike, what about you? What's one thing of uh Simon's later career that uh that you want to point out? Truthfully, out of after Bad Out of Hell too, I kind of lost track of his work and I wish I could say I knew more about it. But, you know, even looking on Wikipedia, it's like most of the stuff I had never heard before. So it was like it kind of like fell flat for me. Yeah. Well, to your point, there's no reason to even talk about Bad Out of Hell 3. No, uh, because, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, now I, that does have Steinman songs on it, but Steinman didn't work directly mm-hmm. on that album. It was produced by Desmond Childs mm-hmm. with Meatloaf, and they used some of Steinman's like library of songs that he had. Um, so it's not really. And I've, to be honest with you, I've never heard anything off of it. I don't think. I think Meatloaf disavows it, and I think his last work with Jim was uh, the album's called braver than we are the sad thing is meatloaf's voice on that it's it's gone Mm. it's just gone so um so yeah unfortunately after bad out of hell 2 i mean there is stuff to that's out there i mean i i definitely think people should uh check out the musical that he worked on with um uh android weber as well as uh, dance of the vampire um, and actually, the the I'm interested. I haven't heard anything off of it. That the musical of Bad Out of Hell sounds interesting to me because he was working on that. Um, there's a lot of other music that we haven't even you know approached getting uh, that's out there that I recommend people listen to. 
But um, so let me ask you this, Bambi, in, in conclusion, in conclusion, mm-hmm. um, since you weren't really aware of him until, you know, maybe three weeks ago, really, as an, as an artist, what have you learned now about his, his, do you find him significant? I do. And it's like, once I've realized that he was a part of these songs, I can hear it. Like I hear that I can recognize his, his songwriting style. I think in general, I mean, there's probably stuff that I still wouldn't recognize, but he does have a, I guess, a unique kind of flavor to his, his writing that does stand out. So I, I get it. it. I totally understand the appeal of his songwriting. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Ricky, what about you? Uh, I, I didn't like Bambi. I didn't know that he had been involved with some of these things, but I can totally hear it. You know, finding out that he wrote some of these songs, it's like, okay, that totally makes sense. I can mm-hmm. definitely hear that. Michelle, what would you say is uh, Steinman's legacy? Um, not, not too many people can do what he did, and the, and he will always and forever be paired with Meatloaf. But when, like we've been talking about tonight, he proved that he could make his formula work with any number of performers that you wouldn't think it would work with. Barbara Streisand, Barry Manilow. They, they didn't have quite the same ability to do it as, as Meatloaf and Bonnie, but he could make it work. And twice he made a massive album out of it. So, so you're saying he could make hits out of nothing at all. Oh, exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I don't think anything else needs to be said after that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll end the segment there. Look, uh for those people who are, you know, hope we've learned a little bit about uh Steinman and his influence. Um I think one thing we can agree on is is he was unique. Mm-hmm. Um he was a unique voice. Um, you know, he brought a a operatic theatrical epicness to rock and roll that mm-hmm. had not really been there beforehand and is is there, I mean, a little bit now, but I mean I don't know if we'll ever see the like of his again. Um, so I would definitely recommend people seek out his 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 stuff with meatloaf and without, um, because uh, some of that is really interesting as well. And even even if you don't really like it, um, the guy was a uh, he could talk your ear off, and great great storyteller. Uh, check out some of his interviews on YouTube. And there, there's a couple that are a couple of hours long, but he just spins such entertaining stories about meatloaf and the music industry. And you'll be highly entertained. I promise. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. All right. So thanks everybody for joining us and then, and, and, and giving a tribute, our own little earth station one tribute to Jim Steinman. Um, we will be right back and we're going to get free. Laboratory. Hello everyone, Dr. Geek here with a shout out to all the scientists who worked tirelessly to bring a COVID-19 vaccine into reality. <laughs> Let's face it, creating something of this magnitude is a miracle worthy of Dr. McCoy himself. And now, Dr. Geek needs you to do your part. 
Remember, each shot is one small step back to normal, one giant leap to putting the pandemic behind us. We can do this. For more information, visit vaccines.gov to find your nearest provider. Welcome to A Geek Girl's Take. This is your host, Angela, and this week, this geek girl is talking about MODOK Season 1. There's been a huge buzz about all the Disney Plus Marvel shows, but not as much for the new Hulu Marvel MODOK series that just aired a couple weeks ago. Patton Oswalt plays the voice of MODOK, and the show goes over his time at his company AIM and how he's trying to take over the world. You also see MODOK's family life with his wife and two kids. So the show starts off with AIM being bought out by tech company Grumble, your stereotypical Amazon or Google textile company. MODOK struggles between his dreams for world domination and his family life, which is incredibly dysfunctional, and also keeping his dream of creating the perfect utopia where he is the world leader alive. This show is really funny and has lots of silly cameos from Marvel superheroes and villains including Wonder Man voiced by Nathan Fillion and Iron Man voiced by John Hamm. There's also a ton of others from Alan Tydek to Whoopi Goldberg to just a ton of other cameos in this show. We see MODOK and a group of lower class villains try to have a heist of the Avengers Tower to get Captain America's shield, which just falls apart, as well as some time travel episodes and lots of other really zany stuff. You also get a super big cliffhanger at the end of season one, so I really hope there will be a second season of this highly amusing show. The animation style is fun, the series is chaotically fun, and it's just a really enjoyable, silly Marvel TV watch. Well, thanks for listening to A Geek Girl's Take. What will I post about next week? Well, you're going to have to listen to find out. Welcome back. Now it's time for the creative outlet. Let's welcome Frank Fortier to the show. Welcome, Frank. Hey, guys. How are you? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Welcome to the station. It's great. Great to be here, man. You got a new Kickstarter going. What do you got? I do. I have a thing called Warlash. It's a character I created actually back in the 90s and then revamped him in the 2008, 2009s. We did like a three-issue series. But this new Kickstarter is two new comics. It's called Warlash, Cold Metal Mayhem, and Bio Burden, which are two one-shots that are coming out to comic stores. But the Kickstarter is going to have a bunch of exclusives, metal covers, variant covers, sketch covers. And um, one of the stories, one of the books, you know, it's uh, 32 pages, like three short stories. One features Steve Mannion, if you know him from Fearless Dawn and uh, some of the Albatross book stuff. Um, it's a black and white story that we did, but we recently colored it. Uh, Dwayne Harris is also in the story. He does a story called Enter the Generator. And a third story in Warlash, Cold Metal Mayhem, is Warlash. He fights a female robotic, kind of like an Ultron. But if you're not familiar with Warlash, I would say that Elevator Pitch is he's a armored post, an armored post-apocalyptic warrior of the future, you know, think like Judge Dredd meets RoboCop meets like the Scorpion in like a rank Xerox world. So it's just like total chaos, total mayhem. He's a lone Avenger fighting all these dark villains, robots, cyborgs, mutants, and, you know, villainy is afoot in futuristic Pittsburgh and Warlash is there to stop it. That is awesome. It sounds, <laughs> it, no, it sounds great. And, you know, 
that's it's a neat sounds like a neat project and you got i like how you have all these different folks working on the different chapters and such yeah i like to write and draw some of the stuff myself but i never had a problem with like giving a writer or an artist like the freedom to do his own thing i think a lot of cool stuff comes out of it and especially with uh you know steve mannion i'm just like here's kind of the model sheet go for it and not everyone draws warlash the same it's just like not everybody draws batman the same in batman black and white like they let people go off on it you know especially when you know, there's like those Elseworld things, like you just kind of let people have their go at it. And if it, 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 it's a short story, so it fits into the, you know, chronology somehow it's in there. You know what I mean? Like uh, the longer stories like Warlash, um, Zombie Mutant Genesis, which is on Comixology right now, that's like a longer story. But, you know, if you really need to know how everything works cr- chronologically, I could give you a list. But it's just like all these things happen, you know, within the realm of Warlash's life in Pittsburgh, you know. So it's just um, it's just a really fun character to do. He's, he's really fun to draw. And I just hope I can get the word out to other people. And, and Kickstarter seems like a way to really go about it you know for an independent publisher you know indie fans love to support on kickstarter so asylum press has been on there we just did a a vampire versus one um so this is like a really i'm new to it i'm new to kickstarter so i'm trying to build the fan base get the word out you know we're on social we're like tweeting all the time instagram we're gonna get a tiktok all this stuff but you know i'm just hoping we can get the word out to the fans that is awesome. That sounds great, man. And we're here to help you. This cool. is how we're, you know, this love is it. a great way to do it. Yeah, We've it. actually pushed a few Kickstarters over the top. Cool. And so, you it. know, hopefully our ESO network and Earth Station One folks can help and support you. And how can they find you on Kickstarter? So Kickstarter, I mean, if you just go and search Warlash, uh, Cold Metal Mayhem, and Bio Burden, number one, comics and more, that's really the title. But Warlash, Cold Metal Mayhem, it'll come up also. Uh, inked pub, inked.pub slash Warlash is also a shorter version. Uh, Kevin at Inked Marketing has helped me market it. And for me, you know, AsylumPress.com is the publishing company on the web. And Asylum Press is on all the socials, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Frank Forte Comics. I'm on Instagram, Frank Forte Comics on Twitter. It's like my comic book uh, social media. So you can find me all over the place. I'm, I'm out there to be found tweeting artwork and comics and villains and doing sketches of, you know, the Bob's Burgers characters, Rick and Morty, Harlequin, Lobo, whatever, fan art and my own stuff. That is awesome, dude. That is really, really awesome. We'll also have the link to it up on our show notes just in case. So thank you so, so much and good luck on the project, man. Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. We'll do this again. Most definitely. Let's take a quick break and we will be back with the closing. Everyone these days could use a little support and your friends at the ESO Network are no different with the ESO Network Patreon. The cool thing is, is when you help support us, it's you who will benefit. With four tiers starting for as little as 25 cents a week, you can listen to some of your favorite network podcasts early, hear exclusive content, maybe get some ESO swag, or even possibly take a shot at the geek seat. All you need to do is sign up at patreon.com backslash ESO network.
So that's going to wrap up this episode of the Earth Station One podcast. Wanted to thank our guests for being here tonight. Michelle, thank you as always to, for being with us tonight. Thank you. And of course, as always, thank you for all the work you do on the ESO website and of all the uh, weekly topics you bring to us. It's really great. Thanks for having me. No problem. Anything coming up that you're going to be writing about in the next couple of weeks? Ooh, still digesting the uh, Rock Hall inductions, and there's all kinds of random news. I'm trying to figure out how to pack into the next segment. Oh, that's totally un- understandable. And of course, Ricky and Bambi, thank you, thank you. Thank you for having us on the show. Oh, guys, you know, it's whenever we talk about music, it's almost like Ricky and Bambi are going to be here. So it's, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> a, it's always a great thing. So, you know, live music is popping up again, left and right. And you guys must be getting really, really busy. Eh, not as busy as we'd like. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it is. We are we are certainly playing more shows now than we were there for about a year. Yeah, we're certainly. What's wild is we keep getting like people asking us to play the same freaking handful of dates. It's like oh. we, our schedule would be so full if they all wanted different dates, but it's like, what is it up with these like two weekends? Oh wow! So you you need to have clones of Ricky and Bambi, basically. Yeah, there we go. Exactly. That's cool. But you know. So where, you know, where can people find when they want to see you? Facebook. Facebook. Under Radio Cult, of course. That's Radio Cult on Facebook. And if they want to hear us, we're on Spotify and YouTube uh, and Apple Music and iTunes, wherever you listen to music. Yes, and we're in multiple bands, but I guess Radio Cult, Possum Kingdom Ramblers. Those are the two main the ones. The two main ones. That's very cool. And, you know, I hope you guys have an amazing summer. So, but we'll be talking to you at the end of the summer with Duran Duran coming up. Yeah. The band's so good, they named it twice. So. The uh, <laughs> Possum King Ramblers were the first band I saw post pandemic. So, and uh, it was really fun. And I, uh, I appreciate you guys coming out. And, and it was, uh, it was, it just, it just felt good. So, um, it's kind of a good. reunion for us, too. You got to watch us play together for the first time on stage in a long time in a long not time. the first yeah, time ever, ever but you know <laughs> that was, I was like wow it really was let's practice on stage it was a fun show it was a reunion beyond belief it was awesome so that's we're awesome in the, we're in the early stages of working on our new Possum Kingdom Ramblers album yep hmm. that wow that's pretty amazing that's you know is that an exclusive here uh, maybe. Oh, maybe. Sure. That's <laughs> awesome. Now it is. That is awesome. 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 And Mr. Mike, we made it through another one, my friend. We did. And as always, it's my pleasure. Excellent. Anything you want to shout out about tonight, sir? Yeah, I do want to, uh, you know, give my shout outs. Uh, they're more tributes. Uh, really, we lost a, a couple of uh, names that have been influencers in pop culture, uh, actors in particular. Uh, one that we lost was Paul Souls. He's a Canadian actor, had a huge career, did a lot of uh, uh, live broadcasting in Canada and TV, um, did some movies as well. But most people most know him as the voice of Hermie the Elf in the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer uh, animated special, the Bank and Rass special, um, and as the voice of Peter Parker, Spider-Man in the 60s series, Spider-Man, um, he uh, he made an impact. Uh, so uh, we lost him. 
Um, and uh, we also lost Gavin McLeod, who, um, you know, I was first introduced to when I was watching reruns of McHale's Navy back in the day. Um, and then I saw him on Mary Tyler Moore. And then I saw him on, um, you know, The Love Boat. And for like two decades, I think, you know, I was watching him on something. So, um, uh, and he did a lot of other stuff, a lot of movies in early on his career and appeared in a lot of, you know, uh, dramas and, and, and even on Wonder Woman and uh, shows like that back in, in the 80s. Um, I think the most, the, the last time I saw him, he was on an episode of that 70s show. Uh, but he worked up until I think a few years ago and, uh, um, yeah, he, so there was a guy that, uh, was working, has worked for a long time, I think for over 50 years. Um, you know, he was, he was out there and, uh, yeah, it's just uh, one of those things you're like, damn, uh, he, and he always had good work. So mm -hmm. I appreciate, uh, him and, uh, and the work of Paul Souls as well. Yeah. Gavin was the first of the Love Boat crew to actually pass. You would think Isn't that weird, yeah. It, it, you would think you know they were all older that one or two would have passed, but no, Gavin was the first. Yeah, that's a, that is amazing to think. And he's well now. I think there's only one cast member of Mary Tyler Moore left. Two, two. sorry, two, two. Um, so um, yeah, it's just you know, it, it these things are it's the end of an era, right? Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. But my shout out actually is kind of a rebirth of an era, kind of, sort of. Want to give a huge shout out to our friend Alex Autry and his lovely wife, uh, Tally. They actually had time during this whole thing to actually study improv. And they took improv classes and they actually graduated this last Saturday from the uh Basically, it was the Elm Street Culture Arts Center Village in Woodstock, Georgia. And they, Judy and I went to the graduation and had a blast. And it was so neat to see Alex up there, you know, you know, improving and acting and do. And Tally was no slouch either. So both of them looked like they were having a lot of fun. And kudos, kudos to them, to our movie guy. So Yes, congratulations. It, it's really awesome. I've taken improv classes when I was living in Los Angeles and it's not easy folks. It is not, you have to think on your feet constantly and you almost have to be one step ahead of the other folks and, you know, trying to figure out what you're going to say, how you're going to do, because you can't have any dead time. You know, you can't go there and try to process what the people are thinking. You have to be right on your toes and it is non-scripted and people are yelling ideas from the audience and you just have to go with it. And, you know, used to have the Drew Carey show, you know, that was on, you know, TV all the time that they did improv. Still on, yeah. yeah. And so it's, it's just amazing. You know, these people, you know, how these people do it. They have my kudos. They have my admiration, especially since I studied how to do it. And, you know, like I was telling Judy, just to get up there on stage is pretty darn amazing. So folks, you know, definitely if you ever get a chance, you know, tell congratulations to Alex and Tally. Congrats guys. So happy for him. So happy for him and his wife to, to, to get that done. And uh, so now that Alex has graduated from improv school, does that mean when he comes back on the show, he's going to be funnier? No, not oh, really. Okay. That's no, no. no guarantees on that. No guarantee on that. You know, he's gonna, it, it is going to mean he's going to want more money though. Right? 
I'll double his salary, so it's okay. <laughs> so yeah, he has he has no worries about that at all, right there. So it, it's it's just great and everything. All right, join us again next week. We are going to do something a little bit different. We're going to have some travel agents on the show with us, and we are doing places to see after lockdown. You know, everything is slowly opening up again, and you know, I'm starting to you know buy tickets to concerts. We're you know starting to talk about trips we're going to be taking, and you know, we're, it's been a year and a half since we've done anything like this, and so we thought it'd be kind of cool to do a show about places to you know go, places to see what's opening up, what's not, if what restrictions, and you know, so it should be. Very, very interesting. We don't know where it's going to go. And it's kind of improv. Get it? And tying it in right there. Uh, oh, I thought you were going to say, we didn't know, you know, we didn't know what, where it's going to go. So that's why we have some travel agents with us. Oh, well, that's why we have travel agents on us. Because I'm sure both Mike and I will have a vacation booked right after this one. So, so, so you're bringing in people to tell you where to go. Oh, they've been telling us where to go on this show for 11 years now. So There's no end to that. No, we never have that problem on this show. But thanks for listening to the Air Station One podcast. We're powered by NSC. You can find them at nsclivetv.com. Remember, you can also find Earth Station One wherever fine podcasts are found, including now Amazon Music. Please subscribe and tell all your friends about us. Yeah, we're not too proud to beg. On behalf of myself... Mike Faber. Thank you, Mr. Mike Gordon. And of course, Michelle Borg and Ricky and Bambi. Thanks again for listening. We can see you next time here on the Air Station One podcast. Stay safe. Hug your loved ones. Please, folks, get vaccinated. You know, it's great seeing people without masks all the time now and not have to be worrying, oh my God, are we going to survive? <laughs> you know, just take care of yourselves. Come on. We want to see you here next time on Air Station One. Peace, and we are done. Boom. You've been listening to the Air Station One podcast, a show by fans for fans. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to our show up on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are found. While you're up there, please rate us and remember to leave feedback. It would greatly be appreciated. And remember to tell your friends all about us while you're at it. Air Station One is available on most social media sites where you can join some really great topics or chats. Help support our show by shopping through our Amazon.com link or purchasing very cool ESO Network clothing and merchandise at our Tee Public store. Links to both are found on the top of our ESO Network webpage. Become a patron of the ESO Network by backing us up on Patreon for as little as 25 cents a week. Go to patreon.com slash ESO Network to sign up. We want to hear from you. Please write us at earthstation1 at esonetwork.com or call us at 404-963-9057. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time here on the Earth Station One podcast. Peace, and we're done. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.